Churchpreneurs Podcast. My name is Richard Moore. I'm your host and informant for everything church, theology, and faith related. Churchpreneurs' vision is to accelerate the church in mission, vision, and effectiveness and fulfilling the Great Commission in our communities and into the rest of the world within this generation. In this podcast, I talk about everything that's moving me in relation to church, theology, and hopefully to empower you in your ministry, church, Bible study, theological understanding, and most importantly, your personal growth in Christ. So today I wanted to take some time and throw my hat in the ring. I've been seeing a lot of uh, stuff about this Asbury Revival and uh, at Asbury uh, College and, and Seminary. And I wanted to uh, make some remarks, uh, not necessarily to comment on the revival or what's taking place there at Asbury itself. I'm very ill-informed on the thing. I, I feel like I don't have enough information to make a comment, but rather to throw my hat in the ring. I haven't seen many comments or, uh, uh, you know, uh, biblical sort of, uh, guardrails, as it were, or, or biblical comments on what revival is, um, besides some some side remarks and stuff like that. People have been trying to comment on what's happening there currently. I, again, I'm not really informed enough to know what exactly is happening, besides that uh, there's uh, extended periods of worship, students stayed in the chapel. Um, that's really cool, it feels like to me. Um, but uh, I wanted to give uh, sort of a biblical history of revival and some remarks uh, into uh, what uh, historical revival has looked like. So I wrote an article uh, quite some time ago uh, called There's Gonna Be Revival in the Land, The Distinctive Marks of Revival in Biblical History. So I wanted to present that to you today. Um, uh, again, some preliminary remarks. Um, I haven't seen much uh, besides just the worship. You know, you get these two or three minute worship clips of people very, very excited and and excited to, to sort of stay in their chapel time. They had an extended chapel service. And uh, well, I don't think the chapel service was extended. I think the students just stayed uh, in chapel uh, because they wanted to continue in worship. And that's wonderful. I've seen some things like uh, people trying to go there um, from the NAR, uh, people like Daniel Kalenda and uh, Todd Bentley um, of the disgraced Todd Bentley of the Lakeland Revival, who is still unrepentant, as I understand. Um, and uh, so, I, you know, I'm careful on those things. They're welcome to go there. I mean, it's... it's you can go there if you want, uh, and you can as well. You're welcome to go and check things out, I guess. And actually, I've heard some positives. They're turning people away and, and trying to actually sort of keep it student-led um, and sort of student-initiated. That That's interesting to me. I appreciate that. Uh, back in the day, I actually thought about going to Asbury and uh, applied there, and I think it was accepted, if I remember correctly, uh, which is not saying much because I graduated with a 2.1 cumulative high school grade point average. So I was not the hottest candidate for Bible colleges. Uh, I graduated uh, high school by the skin of my teeth, as it were. I was more interested in basketball and football and stuff like that. So anyways, uh, I digress. 
But uh, I, those those schools were on my radar and have been since. I, I know several people here in the mission field, uh, in the mission community here who have gone to Asbury. Um, so I, I know the school, know, know it enough to know it, but don't know much beyond that. So I couldn't really comment on that either. But I say all that to say, um, I've seen some interesting things. Some uh, I, I certainly pray for revival. I certainly know there was a revival in the 70s. I was born in 76, so I can't comment on that either. So you're saying, Richard, why are you trying to comment on all this? You you have no (laughs) way to comment. You're kind of right. So, But I do want to throw my hat in the ring because I did look into revival and biblical history. And so... Uh, but, you know, without any further ado, I just want to give this out there and hopefully maybe people at, Revi- at Asbury see this and, um, you know, hopefully they, they it can help and 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 maybe give some some guardrails and or some some things to focus on um, as they continue to see the Lord. So um, Psalm 143, 11 says this, for the sake of your name, O Lord, revive me in your righteousness bring my soul out of trouble. Uh, This psalm has been one of my favorites uh, for a very long time. Uh, But what is revival? Um, And so let's just jump in. I've got this article and I'll try not to read it to you, but try to go through it and uh, and give you uh, the main points here. Let's take a look at the biblical historical revivals and draw some principles from those times that marked uh, biblical revival or revival in the Bible. Some say there's no such thing as revival in the Bible. Um, but uh, let's let's uh, let's take a look. Would you humor me for a moment? I was at an event where a wonderful choir sang a gospel song and the lyrics in the chorus were, there's going to be revival in this land. Uh, I got my attention uh, because it seemed like a command and a request for revival. The implication of the words was that revival is a foregone conclusion. It got me thinking, uh, is that true, actually? Is revival a foregone conclusion? So I spent uh, many years serving in Southern Baptist denomination. And uh, this is not a knock on SBC, I promise, um, because I did love it and enjoyed it. But uh, I served in several SBC churches, and every year, you know what's coming, um, every fall, those churches had Revival. Um, and it was often said uh, the same as the same in the song. We're going to have revival, y'all. Uh, <laughs> so I have to get my Southern out. We're going to have revival, y'all. I always thought this was so peculiar. Um, I would ask, really? Like, are we going to have revival? <laughs> are we going to have, uh, you know, is God going to refresh us by his spirit? Is he going to call us to faith and repentance? Or are we going to have an event with a gospel choir and an evangelist to preach. Now, those things are wonderful. We ought to do those things. And those things could possibly spark revival where the evangelist calls people to faith and repentance. Um, but uh, I always thought, hmm, um, we have our faithful part to play in seeking God and praying for revival as the psalmist does here. Uh, but revival can't be contrived or manufactured by men. Revival is the sovereign activity of God, whereby he renews his people individually and corporately in vigor, affecting both sincerity of belief and quality of behavior. Revival, furthermore, refers to a spiritual reawakening from a state of stagnation in the life of a believer. Revival is seen in love for God, 
the fear of God's holiness, a zeal for his word and his church, a conviction of personal and corporate sin, humility and desire for repentance and growth in sanctification. Revival invigorates and sometimes deepens a believer's faith, opening his or her eyes to the truth in a fresh way. For the believer in Christ, revival marks a new beginning of a life lived in obedience to God. Revival breaks the power of the world, which blinds people to their need for God, and generates both the will and the power to live in the world, but not of the world. This more specifically defines revival and gets our thoughts going as to what revival is and how we can determine its distinct signatures. I like to look at the Great Awakenings. I'm not an expert in this by any stretch. Please don't don't get me wrong. Um, I read I like reading Jonathan Edwards, and I like the Great Awakenings, but but I haven't dug de- as nearly as deeply as I ought to. But in the Great Awakening, uh, God poured out His Spirit um, on Jonathan Edwards' Northampton congregation. Uh, in describing what happened in their church in, in 1734, observers said, quote, it pleased God to display his free and sovereign mercy in the conversion of a great multitudes of souls in a short space of time, turning them from a formal, cold and careless profession of Christianity to the lively exercise of every Christian grace and the powerful practice of our holy religion, end quote. The Great Awakening is especially remarkable in the sense that sin and wrath were boldly preached, as seen in Jonathan Edwards' famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. These weren't kumbaya meetings where peace and love and joy and everything were preached and people fell over in in the euphoria of the moment, but rather they fell over in weeping and wailing with desperate signs of repentance, uh, even physical signs of repentance. Um, and if you look at uh, the sinners in the hands of an angry God, just the text of it, just go read that. Uh, go check that sermon out. I remember re- having to read it in high school. And Jonathan Edwards just read the thing. He, I mean, as I understand it, he just read the sermon and no effect, no, no, uh, let's say highfalutin or, or, or revivalist type bang in the pulpit and stuff like this, just read it. And people were really, uh, as it were falling out in repentance, not in euphoria. So it's very interesting. I'd like to take a brief sweeping look at the scriptures now and the revivals that God granted in biblical history. Scripture reveals that there are several spiritual characteristics that preceded revival, including repentance humility, and obedience, both corporately and privately. The characteristics were God's people longing for renewal in their lives. In Psalm 74, uh, Psalm 80, Psalm 85, revival required that God's people repented. And we see that in 2 Chronicles 7, 1 Kings 8, 2 Chronicles 6, Isaiah 64, Hosea 5, uh, Acts chapter 3, I would just uh, uh, recommend those texts to you for your, uh, for your further study. God's people experience a new awareness of sin in 2 Kings 22, Psalms 32. Um, God's people were also humbled and humbled themselves in Isaiah 57, 
Psalm 149, Isaiah 66, and Micah chapter 6. But we see this kind of as a continual uh, sort of like rhythm, let's say, in the Old Testament. God calls a prophet. The prophet comes. He speaks. He calls people to repentance. They humble themselves in repentance and faith. Uh, God's people are revived through God's initiative, not their own initiative. It is a work of his sovereign plan and a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. Isaiah 59, Jeremiah 24, uh, Jeremiah 33, and Titus 3, 5, and 6. For it is by grace we have been saved through faith, and this not of ourselves is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Titus 3, 5, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of the regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost. It's God's sovereign work and uh, not, cannot be effectuated or uh, initiated by the initiative of men. Now, we ought to, <laughs> ought to ask God and, and plead and beg with him to revive us, to revive our churches, our, our cities, our nations, but it is his sovereign work. It is clear throughout scripture and Christian history that awakening and revival strike people personally in the supernatural sovereign plan and power of the Holy Spirit. The personal revival in scripture is described as the experience of inward change, Hebrews 8, 10 through 12, Jeremiah 31, 33 through 34, Ezekiel 11, 9, Acts 2, 42 through 47, where the early church had their um, revival and drew many people to faith. People begin living obedient lives, Ezekiel eleven twenty, 20, Ephesians 4, 1 through 3, and 1 Thessalonians 1, 7 to 8. There's a tangible zeal for God's work, and it grows. Ezra 5, 1 through 2, and Haggai 1, 12 through 15. We think of the rebuilding of the wall in Nehemiah's time with Ezra. Ezra reads the, the law and people repent, and the, 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 the community of Israel repents and turns back to God. Uh, generosity and giving abounds during revival, Exodus 36, 5. First Chronicles 29, 6 through 9. First, uh, Second Chronicles 31, 3 through 8. Acts 11, 28 through 30. And if any of these uh, texts, you don't write them all down or don't have a look at them, uh, I've, I'll post the link to this article that I wrote uh, several years ago in the, in the show notes. A true pleasure in worshiping God arises. So that's one thing we have seen with this Asbury revival is that um, they have a true pleasure in, in worship. Um, I haven't seen much else because, of course, all, people only take videos of the songs that are being sung. I haven't seen uh, full sermons or, or you know, evangelists coming and preaching. And I think they're trying to keep it student-led, student-run, um, which is maybe why they haven't had much uh, else. Um, so that's fine. But... There is a renewed joy in the Lord in worship, um, and that's seen in Acts 13, 49 through 52, Isaiah 35, 1 through 10, Acts 8, verses 5 through 8. It is clear that a major theme of revival is the regeneration of the carnal man. That is the Holy Spirit removing the spiritual blinders off a man's eyes for them to see the brilliance of Jesus Christ. So, 
Of course, we know the Holy Spirit's job is to glorify Christ. He doesn't glorify himself. He glorifies Christ. Or anybody who, if you would see marks of revival and people are saying the Holy Spirit was this or that, or the other thing, I would tend to question that because the Holy Spirit does not glorify himself. He cannot. He only glorifies Christ. And why does he glorify Christ? So people can turn in repentance and faith to Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. That's why he does it. Uh, he makes those who were dead in sin to regenerate and makes them alive in Christ. There is a sense also that we appeal to God for revival. Uh, we ought to appeal to God for revival. We've been praying for that here in Germany for years as missionaries. Jeremiah 17, 14, Psalm 51, 7 through 12, um, Psalm 119, 34 through 37. One thing that cannot be overlooked is the law. God's law in scripture has initiated revival countless times. One of my favorite biblical stories is uh, The Good Little King Josiah. Now, it was a book when I was a young man, um, and it was called Good Little King Josiah. He reformed Israel when he found the law in the temple as they were cleaning it and renovating it. Think about that. Um, you're country Israel had lost the law somehow or kind of misplaced it. And they're like, hmm, maybe we ought to clean out our temple. And they did. And what do you know? They found the law. And Josiah brought Israel back to the worship of Yahweh and said, what have we been missing here? They worshiped him and began to worship him as the one true God through the discovery of the law. Isn't that something? People are revived from spiritual stupor when they discover that they fall well short of the perfect law, and realizing that their only hope is in the atoning work of Christ. They cast themselves on his mercy and salvation. We think of Romans 3, uh, 23 through 25, and uh, Romans 6, 23. So this is very interesting. Uh, I haven't heard anything coming from Asbury now. It may just be because I haven't heard of it, but I, I really am not trying to condemn or uh, approve of this. Uh, it, it's far too early, in my opinion, to uh, say this is a true revival or whatever the case may be, or this is or to poo-poo on the revival. I'm not trying to poo-poo on anybody's revival, I promise you. <laughs> but I haven't heard any law uh, preached. Now, that's what we think about sinners in the hands of an angry God. Edwards preached law and gospel, law and forgiveness. Here, you fall short, um, for all have fallen short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace. Receive uh, the free gift of God as offered through Jesus Christ. So as previously stated, the fruit of salvation revival is that God receives praises uh, and obedience of his people. Uh, it's clear in the biblical record that revival is God's work and it's not the contrivance of man or conjured up by emotional stimuli. That's what we have to really be careful for. Man's emotions are a large part of revival. We are emotional people, but it is rather a reaction to the incredible grace and mercy of God. The stirring up of affection for Christ are a large part of the reaction to revival, but are not the cause or initiator of revival but rather a supernatural work of God. 
And I've got a list here of scriptures where we see that Hosea 6, verse 2, Psalm 80, uh, verse 3, verse 7, verse 17 through 19, uh, Isaiah 32, 14 through 17. There were a few revivals in the nation of Israel under Hezekiah and good little King Josiah, as previously mentioned, uh, where these kings drew the gaze away from idolatry to the worship of the one true God. A common theme in the Old Testament is idolatry, of course. God's jealousy for his people is seen in that he requires their soul devotion and worship and will not tolerate idolatry. The Bible says that God is a jealous God. That is usually perceived as a negative emotion. As in the case of marriage, uh, I wouldn't be a loving husband if I weren't jealous for my wife's affections. Uh, I, I would not be taking our marriage vows seriously if I didn't treat her with a jealous affection. So also with God, he's a jealous God. He's jealous for our affections. If God were not jealous for the affections of his people, his bride, the church, uh, and, and previously Israel, he would not be serious about his covenant promises. A stunning example of this jealousy is found in the Old Testament as the people of Israel are about to inhabit the land of Canaan. The story begins as they're camped at a place called Shittim in Numbers 25. Uh, this is a very incredible story, so I would, I would very encourage you to go read it. Uh, but right there before Israel enters the promised land, the people of Israel, it says, quote, unquote, hoard themselves with the daughters of Moab, and they began to worship Baal. It says Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor. The text in Numbers clarifies that the worship of Baal and the daughters of Moab clearly had engaged together in the sin of Baal worship, which included deep sexual sin. God tells Moses to take all the offending chiefs of the people and hang them a public punishment for a public sin. Now, I'm not advocating us hanging people, uh, but they take sin seriously. They took sin seriously, and God did too. Matthew Henry comments on how God meets out his justice by saying, quote, ringleaders in sin ought to be made examples of justice, end quote. The people were weeping and wailing for repentance at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and the country is seeking to purge themselves from this evil. While this is happening, all this is happening, so they're trying to purge themselves. Moses has hung the ringleaders of uh, Baal worship, the people who have drawn and hoard themselves with Baal of Peor. While this is all happening, apparently there's a national crisis. It's not very clear exactly, but some form of a plague breaks out, killing 24,000 people. And so go read it for yourself. But in the midst of this sort of this national revival uh, and, and crisis, something quite appalling happens. So here they're trying to repent for their sins. A national crisis breaks out. 24,000 people are killed by a plague that God sent, by the way. A little side note, uh, those who say that God is not the source of sickness uh, must deal with this plague and all the other plagues that he sent in the Bible. Just a side note, he sends this plague, 24,000 people die, and in the midst of all this chaos, um, this national revival, and then crisis, something really appalling happens. A man named Zimri 
brings a Midianite Baal prostitute into the camp. It says, quote, in the sight of all the whole congregation and the people of Israel, while they were weeping at the entrance of the tent of meeting, probably weeping for repentance or weeping for uh, their sin. The people of Israel are repenting, killing the idolaters and seeking God for forgiveness. All of a sudden, here comes a brash and arrogant idolater into the presence of God in front of the tent of meeting, and he brings this prostitute with him. The text becomes kind of unclear at this point. Uh, The text explains that he took her into his tent to have sex, but it might have been much, much worse. Mark R. Talbot explains in his chapter in the book, A God in Transvision of All Things, The Legacy of Jonathan Edwards, why the text might be a bit obscure. Uh, Ronald B. Allen speculates that this passage's obscurity may be prompted by the fact that the scribes of Scripture found the actions described here to be quite repellent and that the precise nature of the offense was consequently somewhat softened through time. He suggests that we could understand the verse six like this. Then a certain Israelite man bought the Midianite woman to the tent of God right before the eyes of Moses and the eyes of all the congregation of Israel. And they were sporting at the tent of entrance of the tent of meeting. In other words, this, what this couple did was to engage in sexual embrace in the manner of Baal worship right at the entrance of the holy tent of God right in front of Moses. If Alan's right, and it's worth reading the whole commentary uh, on verses six to nine from Alan, then the contempt shown by Zimri and Cosby, the Baal prostitute, quote, for the holy things of God and the word of the Lord is unimaginable. And Phineas's emotional reaction becomes even more intelligible. Whether these two in front of the tent of meeting or not, or wherever they were having this sexual act or whatever was happening here, uh, it was so egregious that Phineas, the priest of God, the grandson of Aaron, it says, filled with jealousy of the Lord, picked up a spear and thrust them both through with it, probably while having sex or in the act. Thus, the plague that had killed 24,000 people was stopped. The Lord then declared that Phineas had turned back the wrath of God so that he did not consume the people of Israel. Therefore, God makes a promise to Phineas, quote, I give to him my covenant of peace, and it shall be to him and his descendants after him the covenant of a perpetual priesthood, because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the people of Israel. Wow. Let me draw some parallels here that you might have already noticed. Uh, Phineas, out of jealous zeal for the holiness of the Lord and his hatred of idolatry, accomplished three things. First, it established a covenant of peace. Second, it established for his lineage a perpetual priesthood. And thirdly, his act made atonement for the people. I want to point out that Christ also has accomplished all three of these things in his work on the cross. Christ also had zeal for the dwelling place of God like Phineas did. It says of Jesus, zeal for your house will consume me. 
And this was the prophecy that was remembered by the apostles referring to Christ when he drove out the evil money changers in the temple. Similarly to Phineas, Jesus inaugurated a covenant of peace between God and man. We see it in Romans 5.1. Furthermore, Jesus established a perpetual priesthood, just as the descendants of Phineas also received. The writer of Hebrews says of Jesus, quote, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, end quote. This means that Jesus is the perpetual priest for mankind. In comparison to that one uh, who was imperfect in Phineas because his descendants died. Christ, on the other hand, lives forever as the perfect priest. Finally, as Phineas made atonement for the sins of Israel and stopped the plague, so also Christ, quote, having offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God, end quote. Jesus has also made atonement for us and stopped the plague of sin. At this point, you might be asking, what does this story have to do with revival, Richard? Um, for, first of all, that's amazing that Phineas is a picture of Christ. I hope you get that from me. Christ be glorified. Thank you, Lord, for all you've done for us. But yeah, what does this have to do with revival? Uh, I'd like to point out a few things. Initially, I would like to notice that Israel has experienced a sort of revival here. There is evidence of national repentance, a turning uh, to God away from idolatry, an emotional response to God in that repentance. They're crying and weeping before the tent of meeting, a humility before the Lord, and a public doing away with idolatry to return to the worship of the one true God. Amidst this story, there comes a corruption of Israel turning to God. An, an apostasy of sorts uh, enters the camp. Someone says, no, I'm not going to have revival. I don't want to, to do that. And there's an affront to the holiness of God, of this turning to God. It was before the eyes of all the people, and probably Phineas was one of those leading in revival and repentance. He was filled with a jealous zeal for the Lord, and he could not stand it. Full of jealousy for the worship of the one true God, Phineas accosts the whoring idolatry and purges it from their midst. These stories are, are plenteous in the Old Testament, and they have much application for us today. A, a jealousy for the holiness of God goes hand in hand with revival. A zeal for the Lord must accompany true revival like it did in this story. The Old Testament describes other revivals, uh, like the cycle of the judges, where idolatry is overthrown and the worship of the one true God is renewed. The Old Testament is rife with renewal and reforms. We see reforms under Jacob. On the return to Bethel, Jacob ordered his entire household to put away their false gods and to wash their wash and to change their garments. They did it, and Jacob built an altar to the true God. The false gods were then buried under an oak at Shechem in Genesis 35. Revival started when Samuel exhorted people to put away their false gods and prepare their hearts to serve the one true God in 1 Samuel 7. Moses led the Israelites often in renewal. One such occurrence is when com the complaining Israel saw the mighty hand of God in the parting of the Red Sea. Uh, on the safe passage across to the other side of the sea, Moses led the people in the song of praise in Exodus 14. We find that wonderful song. Israel experienced revival under King David when the Ark of the Covenant was brought back into Jerusalem for the first time. 
On these two occasions, we see the important role that worship through song plays in the reform of the people back to the worship of God. Renewal often accompanies a spirit of praise. We see a wonderful reform and renewal at the dedication of the materials to be used in the building of the future temple in 1 Chronicles 29. There was renewal under King Asa. He removed the Sodomites and all false idols out of the land. He even deposed his own grandmother because of her idolatry. Take care, Grandma. (laughs) King Jehoshaphat led a revival when he ordered the cleansing of the temple and the sanctification of the Levitical priests in uh, 2 Chronicles 19. One of the most dramatic reforms and renewals in Israel happened under Elijah's leadership. Of course, we all know this story probably in Mount Carmel in 1 Kings 18. King Jehu led a large-scale reform later by exterminating all Baal worshipers in their temples, 2 Kings 10. Jehoiada, a godly high priest, led the people in a covenant where he called Israel to forsake their idols to worship God, 2 Kings 11, um, 17 through 20. Under the leadership of Hezekiah, Uh, Israel experienced revival when he cleansed the temple of God in 2 Chronicles 29 through 31. Even wicked kings led reforms. Uh, When wicked king Manasseh became converted, he led his people in a revival by ordering the destruction of all idols, 2 Chronicles 33, 11 through 20. Again, we're reminded of good little King Josiah. I like him. As a young boy, Josiah called the country back to God. He was a young, young man when he became king, uh, even a preteen. I believe he was uh, eight or 10 years old, something like that. Revival began when the book of the law was accidentally discovered during a temple cleanup. The public reading of God's word was a prof- has a profound effect upon both King Josiah and his people, 2 Kings 22 through 23. Much later, after a remnant returned to Israel, Nehemiah and Ezra led Israel to God. After Nehemiah had rebuilt the walls around Jerusalem, Ezra stood by its gates and publicly read and taught from God's word, causing a great revival. That's in Nehemiah 13. Even the evil Ninevites experienced revival. Through Jonah's preaching, they repented and experienced the deliverance from God's devastating judgment, Jonah 3. And now I want to note here, so I'm kind of reading my my article, but I want to note here that Jonah 3, Jonah did not preach repentance. Go look at it. He did not preach repentance. He preached, in 40 days, Nineveh will be destroyed. And the people of Nineveh thought, oh no, we'll be destroyed. Maybe we can beg the mercy of God and he will relent. And he did. And Jonah said, I knew you'd do it. I knew he was so self-righteous and he hated it. I knew you would turn your face back away from from destruction of Nineveh. That's why I didn't want to come. That's why he ran the other way. Um, Very interesting story. Jonah did not preach repentance. He preached destruction. God will destroy Nineveh for its wickedness. And they repented and said, maybe God will relent. And he did. As we continue into the New Testament, we see our first revival taking place immediately with John the Baptist. John preached the imminent appearance of Israel's Messiah, warning them, what did he warn them? To repent and submit to water baptism. 
His message was harsh indeed, just like Jesus' message. And he said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, quote, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For like he knew they were going to say it, you know, like, don't say it. Bip, 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 bip. Don't say it. I know you're going to say it. <laughs> For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children of Abraham. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the tree, ready to cut it down. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear fruit, God is, is, is cut down and thrown into the fire. Of course, our Lord and Savior led in many movements of renewal and conversion to faith. Uh, one such instance was the conversion of the sinful Samaritan woman. After her encounter with Jesus, she went home and her testimony prompted a revival in Samaria in John 4. Through Peter's bold preaching the gospel in early Acts, we read about the great outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost in Acts 2. But look at the sermon preceding it. From there, each apostle spread the gospel to the ends of the earth. In Acts 8, we read of the strong preaching of Philip, the evangelist, concerning the kingdom of God, and it produced a great revival in Samaria in Acts 8, 5 through 12. Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, saw one of the greatest revivals occur in Ephesus during his third missionary journey there. I do not aim to dissect every subsequent revival in history, but to allude to a few of the American revivals of, of which I'm most familiar. Like I said, I'm not an expert. Um, I hope to glean a few principles. So the Great Awakening in 1734 to 1743, in which Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield were very instrumental, saw God do amazing things in which hundreds of thousands came to faith in Christ. Then the second great, great awakening in 1800 to 1840. So first of all, let's notice here, these are years. So the second great awakening was 1800 to 1840. That's 40 years of, of renewal and revival. And this has been a few days uh, so far. So we're in a microwave culture. We want to know what's going on right now. And we want to know if it's revival right now. And uh, so let's be patient and let's pursue God, seek his face and uh, repent from our sin. And uh, he, 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 he can sustain this. He can sustain it. And in these uh, Great Awakenings, it was sustained for many, many years. Uh, these saw, this second Great Awakening saw many millions uh, converted to faith in Christ. So these two are very prominent um, um, examples of American revivals. Now, there's many others we could talk about in, in probably in world history, but I just am most familiar with those. So these are uh, millions of people coming to faith in Christ, and uh, the principles of revival can be seen. First and foremost, the mark of a true revival is that there is usually acceptance of the gospel message at unprecedented levels. Secondly, we see in the Bible and in these great awakenings around the world a true repentance and faith in Christ. As seen in the Old Testament, there is a de demolition and destruction of idolatry. This is also seen in other revivals where people destroyed things in their lives that drew them away from the worship of the one true God. Anything that pulled people away from God on the throne of their hearts was destroyed. Another marker of revival in the Bible and in history is sanctification of the people. In other words, the people that were swept up in revival became more holy and began to reflect Christ more and more. It was a sanctifying effect. 
This is seen in movements like the early uh, Germanic Pietistic movement. Uh, I don't know, as, again, as much about that, but there is uh, a, a pursuit of holiness. Um, revivals are usually precipitated by a focus on prayer, and the result was a missions flame that ignited afterwards. We think of Zinzendorf and those early Pietistic uh, revivals and moves. Anyone that would claim that a revival has broken out, my first question is, what kind of missions advance did or does it have and produce? So let's think about this in years to come. Um, let's, let's, let's really give this litmus test. Um, what kind of missions advance did it produce? Did it produce gospel-focused international missions movement? People going with their lives, spending their lives on the mission field? If no missions movement was produced as a result, I would question the validity of such a revival. Another mark of revival is a renewed focus on God's word. Any claim on revival can only be confirmed if the focus lays squarely on the word of God rather than the experiential emotional elements of a supposed revival. Other elements are the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit to take people to spiritual depth of salvation that they could not have achieved on their own. Conviction of sin is a mark of revival that, so that sinners are despairing in themselves apart from Christ, and conviction of sin is seeing, for example, sinners in the hands of an angry God. We see a conviction and deep weeping and wailing, as in uh, the story in Numbers with Israel. I, I dare say manifestations are a mark of revival. Um, because even Edwards himself documented some extraordinary manifestations of people when they were under the conviction of the Holy Spirit towards repentance. I'd like to note, though, that these manifestations recorded by Edwards and previous revivals were a manifestation that came on people who were under conviction of sin. I'm not going to give credence to a falling out or a drunkenness in the spirit or or a those are not biblical um manifestations of the Holy Spirit, uh, any kind of uh, drunkenness or, or falling out or, or uh, being slain in the Spirit, particularly, these are not biblical. And even the Great Awakening, you can't substantiate that they were falling out under the power of the Holy Spirit in the ways that we see in modern revivalism. Um, they were emotional disturbances at the conviction of sin. And uh, that's what, that's what uh, Edwards uh, saw. So they were humi humiliated, they were humbled, uh, there was led to regeneration, and manifestations took place in authentic revivals were not for the euphoria of those experiencing manifestations. It's not the Holy Spirit's purpose to bring us under ecstasy. Although wonderful sensations of comfort, he is a comforter, and peace may be the outworking of the Holy Spirit's conviction and, and subsequent freedom from sin, you may have great joy because you're free from sin. His purposes are, are to lead us into all truth and convict of sin and righteousness. He's a, he convicts of sin and righteousness. Um, so this is not to say that emotions and affections should not be stirred up for Christ. Edwards himself wrote extensively about the Christian and affection. He wrote about affection and emotion that true religion in great part consists in holy affections. He defined affection not just as emotion either. He defined it as the whole of us, our values, desires, choices, wills, as well as feelings. 
So when we're just falling out under the power of the spirit or we're, we're, you know, in a worship time and just extreme joy and, and you feel a sense of euphoria, that's not the end all and be all. Now you may feel that, but, uh, your choices, your desires, your values, uh, should change. Your affections toward Christ should be strengthened and your rejection of sin, um, so although manifestations have been biblically and historically recorded in awakenings, they're in no way the central mark of revival. Furthermore, revival is not authenticated because of manifestations and or signs and wonders, but rather an astonishing number of people repenting and putting their faith in the message of the gospel. The primary reason that signs and wonders are not, or manifestations are not an authentication of revival is that they can be deceiving or from another source other than God, as seen in Acts 19. Acts 21, Matthew 7, Jesus says that people will be able to perform works um, calling on his name. Um, Deuteronomy 13, signs and wonders, just as in Jesus' day, were used to help people turn their eyes to the one performing the signs and wonders, namely Christ Jesus himself. Jesus and all miracles that occur in the Bible serve to point us to the miracle worker and his gospel, not the miracles. Therefore, a revival moment or a so-called revival leaders that seek to validate themselves through manifestations and the experience thereof, and not the gospel, in my opinion, are not genuine revivals. So what is the core of revival? It's the gospel message. And so what is the gospel? My son, uh, a couple of years ago, was walking around measuring things in the house. He had his tape measure out and he was measuring things. And then he measured himself. He had the tape measure up to himself and he said, hey, dad. How much have I grown in the gospel today? And I, I, I said, wow, okay, this might be a really interesting uh, teaching moment. So I said, well, I, for me to know how much you've grown in the gospel, I've got to know what you say, think the gospel is. So he said, hmm, thought for a moment. He said, the gospel is a gift that God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit are one person. And if we believe in him, we have eternal life. But you can't be sarcastic about it. <laughs> That's what he said. And I said, boy, I think you've really grown in the gospel. Uh, that is the message of the gospel. The triune God has sent his one and only son in our place to die on our behalf, to live the life we could not live, to die the death we deserved in our place, in the vicarious substitutionary, atoning death on our behalf. And by faith in Christ, we can receive eternal life. But you can't be sarcastic about it. And so the gospel saves us. And another time my son said, "What the gospel is that God saves us. And I said, what does he save us from? And then Caleb said, from not being perished. That's the truth. The gospel is that God saves us from not being perished. So, listener, I hope this is an encouragement to you. If you haven't trusted in the eternal uh, message of the gospel through Jesus Christ, repent from your sin, turn in faith to him, and you will be revived. You will be revived. And we pray, Lord, dear Lord, revive us again for the sake of your great name. So that's it. I hope this gives us some guardrails. I hope this gives us some idea of what God does for us in revival. And let's worship him. 
Let's worship him for his work. Thanks for tuning into this episode of Churchpreneur's Podcast. You can find out more information at my website at richardpmore.net. I also blog at richardpmore.blogspot.com. That's where this blog was actually published. You're welcome to follow me on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at richardpmore23. You can also email us at churchpreneurs at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. If you have any ideas for a podcast or any comments or questions, please reach out on one of those platforms. God bless you. Until next time, take care.